What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is online at kboo.fm slash madnessradio. Thanks for joining us today on Madness Radio. I'm your host, Will Hall. Uh, today, my guest is Grania Humphreys. Grania is joining us from West Cork, Ireland. She is a psychiatric survivor, a writer, a mother, and she's an activist for a family member, John, who has been incarcerated for many years and diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. She's been leading campaigns on his behalf. So welcome to Madness Radio, Grania Humphreys. Hi, Will. Lovely to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. And uh, you are someone who yourself has been uh, involved in the system. And also, you're also a family member who's been really campaigning in Ireland, both on behalf of your former partner, John, um, who we're going to be hearing about. Also, you've been a leading voice in Ireland for system reforms and changes in the mental health system and very much involved in the, the movement for mental health reform and critical of psychiatry there. Maybe we should just get started with telling us about your own story. How did you yourself become involved uh, with the mental health system? Well, when I was 27, I came home from London. Well, I was put on a plane because I was six stone and in an awful state. I was having a, a massive mental breakdown, basically. So six stone, that means very, very thin, yeah. Right? yeah. Very, very thin, and I had been using um, drugs as well, like ecstasy and cocaine. I had been in a punk rock, indie underground band. I'd been living the high life. Well, I'd been working very hard, too, but I'd been, I'd got myself involved with a boyfriend as well who had been influencing me. We'd been partying and it, it hadn't been a very good scene really towards the end and I was put on a plane and came home in an awful state. So this was in the, uh, the mid-90s? This would have been in mm-hmm. 97, I mm-hmm. think, around 97. So you weren't eating and you were sleep-deprived and you were just really in a really yeah. difficult place. I was in a very difficult place and some of it my own, of my own making, you know, my parents had noticed when I'd been home the previous summer that I'd been very thin and I'd, I'd gone back to London anyway and I was very driven and very ambitious at the time. And our band was starting to become re- quite recognised in indie circles. We had a following and Melody Maker were doing some reviews on us and we had record label interest. You know, I basically went mad before I cut the album and did the tour. Wow. So. One of my regrets, but um, that I never cut that album. I came back and it was like I had put all of my eggs in that basket in making an album and being in a band. And I didn't have any plan B. And when I got home, I was absolutely terrified. I didn't realize what was happening. I was basically unraveling. Everything was speeding up. I didn't sleep for three months. I screamed. I must have been terrifying to my my younger siblings uh, and my family. My mother didn't take me to a hospital for months. She and some friends, some sort of elder women, uh, very wise women, minded me through this horrendous experience I was having, which was partly drug-induced and partly breaking down of my ego, I would say, that 
I had a very elaborate defense system I had created when I was very, very young and that had lasted until I was 27. I was having a huge breakthrough. Very early on in my experience, I was told this. I was told you're, you're having a breakthrough. My distress was received in a wellness context. I was told that this was a transformative experience, that I would, I would grow through it, that I would become a wounded healer, perhaps, that I would become a stronger person because of it, and that my life would be better. I got all those messages um, very early on, and I got an awful lot of love, to a very tolerant, loving family and community and friends. And I was given all the time in the world to get through this absolutely horrific ego death. This, this was your mother was supporting you and your community and your family was really giving you a very, very positive, supportive message through all this. They absolutely were. And they, I, I had this huge guilt complex that I had even taken drugs, you know, that I had, I, I had experimented with drugs on and off since I'd been in my early 20s, you know, or even at younger, you know, at college, you know, smoking weed and these kind of things. But I'd always been very very driven and ambitious as well and had worked hard too and had I had this whole work ethic combined with this uh, sort of guilt complex <laughs> if you like so but being a very sensitive and creative person as well but also feisty I didn't have the most easy character to live with in my 20s and I, I'm, I'm very glad that I'm not in my 20s anymore. <laughs> and what was it that really drove you into the state? Was it really the drugs, getting involved with ecstasy and cocaine or was it also something that was going on inside of you, some kind of internal conflict because you said your identity changed, you went through a transformation, an ego death. I, I, there was so much happening and, and I had, from being a very sensitive and fragile sort of teenager who was, I was very preoccupied with death when I was young. But when I'd been younger than that, a child, I was very, uh, I was a real mountain goat, real nature girl, out, a very hardy, quite a stoic sort of a character and a real mixed bag. I think the drugs were only a minor part of, of what happened to me. I think fundamentally I was needing to sort of shed my skin and go through this experience in order to mature and to grow. My mother left my father when I was six years old and I think that had a profound impact on my life. So when you came back from London you weren't working, they, people were taking care of you and you were in a pretty wild wild state. You were yelling, you weren't communicating. What was that like being in that state and how did, how did you interact with people around you? The, the, the one word I would use for being in that state was, was terror. I may have seemed frightening to people who were outside of me, but inside me was the most terrifying place to be. I, I just wanted to run. I've actually got a, a small paragraph I've written here, if, if, if you want me to share, that's from my, a memoir that I'm writing about when I'd just been put into the hospital after a suicide attempt. It's a paradox. I was sort of drawn to death, yet terrified of it. But, but really, it was, it was the ego death. I actually didn't want to die. When I'd been in a punk rock band, I'd sort of played with a lot of dark imagery without realizing how these things manifest and how powerful energy is and our minds are. And also, because I was so terrified, death seemed the only way out. But I, I couldn't do it, <laughs> thankfully. It's a short paragraph. I was put on an observation ward with a woman who had tried to cut her wrists and a woman who had drank methylated spirits. 
I was 27, but I felt like a contrary and fragile teenager. I watched time whizzing past. I flew after it, pleading with it. I watched the movie reel of sneering hindsight, horrified, then went in to do battle with it. I thought I could halt time, even control it. I was crazed, desperate, a frenzied 20th century Ophelia, racing from person to person to explain my deranged logic, only with minutes instead of flowers. Time stretched out in front of me like the vast expanse it is, terrifying, relentless, its majesty suddenly revealed. I had become painfully aware of no longer being tangled up in it. The panic attacks first came when I was out, in the supermarket, on a bus. This strange alchemy had been violently thrust upon me without my permission. That was months ago, before I had come crashing into the acute unit, all fire and terror in equal measure. I felt cramped, trapped and confined to a limited space, my madness held down by a tamed world, pinned to a reality box, but not of my making. I fought back the urge to rip down the curtains and cause havoc. I wanted to run, run for my life, run through my rage, through the abyss. But most of all, I wanted to run from time. Wow, that's powerful. So that's sort of some of what I was going through was this absolute wild frenzy of fear and terror of I suppose, fundamentally, I was staring into the abyss, the place I'd always been sort of frightened of. It was sort of lurking around my subconscious in my teens was, was the grave and madness. And I, I suppose I faced them head on during that time of my life. I kind of went down into the underground and the underworld, should I say, the underworld, and spent some time there and became friends with it. And so the people around you were really tolerating and supportive and giving you a sanctuary, but when you had the suicide attempt, that was really too much for them. That's when you went into the hospital. And you said it was an ego death experience. What was it in you that was dying, and what was it that was being transformed? What was dying was this young maiden as well, I suppose, innocence and this kind of this ambition and this idea that I had to achieve. It was letting go of, of youth and vanity and an illusion that I had, I had created and taken mm. too seriously, I think. Because you were really on the brink of becoming a rock star, or at least in your mind, you were on the brink of wanting to be a rock star. Uh, and so you let go of that. I let go of that, and that was very painful. Writing and art had been my first love. Writing was the place I felt most at home. And then, and then I went to acting school, to drama school, and I used to love channeling other people's words, but I loved devising theatre because that meant that I was able to write it and be part of creating it. And I loved political theatre. And um, I don't know if you've heard of Theatre of the Oppressed by Augusta Boal. Great stuff, like all of and physical theatre and... And I'd, I'd, I'd pumped loads of my energy and my life force into creativity and to drama. And then the band was kind of, sort of a place where I was very happy because I, because I was, was kind of in control of the creative process. I really enjoyed writing songs and because it involved words and the singing was quite sort of freeing. But I'm, I think... Primarily, I'm introverted and quite sensitive, and it was all too much for me, this outward expansion. I think I deviated from my true self. I became this person that I wasn't, and I think that was what was dying. And that may have happened very young. I may have become someone I wasn't very young in order to survive a situation because, you know, my home life 
got it got quite confusing. You know, there was step parents and there was extended family. I love all of them absolutely to bits, but myself and my brother were sort of ferried between one house to the other, and then I was sent to boarding school at 11. And my parents, through no fault of their own, they're wonderful parents. They didn't get what they needed emotionally as children. I always knew they loved me, but the emotional, we lacked an emotional language. We were quite sort of English as well in that way, you know, quite reserved. What was lovely about my breakdown was that all my family grew with it and we all became closer. And as I've gotten older, I've got more and more close to them. And I've, as I've done more and more work on myself in family systems therapy and, you know, family constellations. And my mother has done some too now as well. And we're just all growing together and there's a lot of love and I, I'm really blessed with my family. So even though it was this terrifying experience that was ultimately really life-threatening to you, it had this really transformative, positive side, not just for you, but for your family. And how did you get to the point of transformation from being in that hospital and being so terrified and overwhelmed and having attempted suicide? How did you get out of the hospital and then start to move into and through the transformation? Well, it was a very long process. All in all, I think it was three years it took me to fully recover. And I was given that time and I, you know, I was given a lot of love as well. I, I, I was very fortunate because I had some very good people in my life. I, I went to live with a woman called Jana Ferguson. So this woman took me into her life and I was really blessed with her because she, she spoke the language of breakdown. She spoke in metaphor. I even got to meet a Tibetan Lama at her house and she really told me, you know, you're going through a baptism of fire. And they gave me so much space and time. Gradually, there was one day, I think everyone was getting kind of fed up with me after about three years. You know, I was really a drain. <laughs> I'll be honest here. And I had a spiritual experience where I just felt the universe supporting me. I felt a comforter. I felt a warmth. And I spent most of my time out in nature. And the nature was very healing. And like my favorite thing was to sit on a beach of pebbles. And I used to get these very, uh, they were quite altered states really when I think of it, you know, going to white light with pebbles and the water beside me and I just slowly healed and nature supported me and then I had this spiritual experience and I just grew from there. One day it just happened. I, it, it literally just turned like that. I actually met my daughter's father then. I became pregnant and having my daughter... Thankfully, I was fully recovered and very grounded at this stage. And, and having her really, I had her at 30 and it just set me on a whole new path. I have to say I'm, I'm on a very fulfilled, fulfilling and rewarding path now. It prepared me for, for meeting John. My children have different fathers because my daughter's father, he, he left me and um, that was fine. It took me two years to get over that. But, you know, I, I was strong enough and I, I realized that I had a lot of grief around not having a, a family unit for her because of my own stuff. But I, I, I worked through that. I, I met John at Future Forest, which is a lovely place in West Cork. It was instant attraction with both of us. I had been out of a relationship and raising a child on my own for two and a half years. Early on in the, you know, when we were talking, I said, well, you know, I had a breakdown and um, I could see he visibly relaxed. He said, oh, I've had one of those as well. He was 
my age backwards at the time. I was 32 and he was 23, so <laughs> we had a bit of a joke about that. But So he seemed much older than his years. I was yet to find out how much he'd been through. He'd been through an awful lot as a child and as a young man and a young adult, much more than I'd been through at that age. And he went on to have his own um, problems after that with the mental health system that ended up getting him incarcerated. What had happened is John was actually first sectioned when he was, was about 19, I think. Um, I, it's all quite sketchy because I don't know the exact details from, from because I didn't know John then. So sectioning is like an involuntary commitment where you're forced into the hospital. Yeah. Shortly after I met him, I realized that he, he, he was actually having a huge experience himself he actually thought he was Jesus, so he was having the messianic experience. He was having a, a hugely meaningful and transformative experience himself, and I recognized that. Now, I hadn't discovered John Weir Perry at this stage, but I, I knew enough from my own experience that, you know, you get through these things and you come out stronger. Well, John Weir Perry wrote the book Roots of Renewal. Uh, I think that's the name of it. Roots of Renewal, uh, meaning the meaning of psychotic episodes. John Perry basically uses a lot of uh, myth, I think, to, to help people through these huge transformative experiences. He was a practicing psychiatrist in San Francisco, and he set up dia diabetes, which was a, a sort of alternative response to distress, and he had very good outcomes, and I think we should be doing more of that kind of work. I met John Hunt uh, in about uh, 2003. I, it became apparent to me, you know, a while into our relationship that he was having a, a transformative experience himself. And I supported him for a few months and then I became exhausted because he was not sleeping. He was up at night and he was preoccupied uh, with this battle between good and evil. Years later, when I discovered more about these transformational crises, I was astounded at the similarity in uh, experiences, the, the, the sort of apocalyptic end of the world experiences, black and white, a fragmenting of, of, of one's uh, ego, I suppose. I'm not sure if that's the right word. He, he explained the Holy Trinity to me. This was all in his mind, what he was going through. He said that he was part animal, part beast, part God or something. He had three... It's all quite sketchy because it, at the time I knew a lot about what he was going through. I have written about it. There's a piece that I wrote called Sleeping with Jesus. I go into great depth about his experience. But basically he was having a some kind of a breakthrough. He needed loads of support, but he was terrified to go back into the hospital because he'd been involuntarily detained before and forced medicated. The first time he was taken to hospital, he was held down by six, this is before I knew him, held down by six nurses, psychiatric nurses, and injected. So he was absolutely terrified, and I didn't know any of this at the time. So I, I went to his mom and his brother saying, I, I can't cope anymore, John is, he's really, you know, losing it, and, and I'm losing it because I'm not getting any sleep. After everything I'd been through, I don't think my family, quite probably quite wisely, they, they, they didn't have it in them to support John as well because they'd been through so much with me. So I was kind of very on my own with John. I had no support, really. Friends were frightened. My family didn't were frightened too, probably, and probably didn't want me to be involved. 
uh, there was a lot of prejudice around John because in his family there was a, a lot of issues going on in his family. His father was very violent. They were, uh, I suppose, a very disadvantaged family in some ways in that they, they, they didn't have a lot of support themselves. So it was quite tricky stuff, difficult stuff, and I realized quite quickly, quite early on, that people who have, uh, have are coming from this kind of a disadvantaged background really get very poor care. They get a very different experience to someone coming from a privileged background, and this is probably quite a controversial, controversial and difficult thing to speak about, really, because I think it's quite hidden in our society in many ways. People who go into the mental health system haven't got, say, an empowered and educated parent going in and fighting for you. They can actually get lost in the system. They can become owned by the system and handed over to the system. And then the system does what they want with them, like over-medicate them for years on end, break their spirit. I mean, really, it's absolutely shocking. I was absolutely appalled by what I saw and by what I have gone through and how really the system or the psychiatric system seems to violate the rights of these people who, who maybe haven't got the same opportunities. I called his brother and his mother, and his mother has had to sign him in before, and it's not something she wanted to do. She didn't feel that she could support him because she has... A, a lot on her plate. So she signed him in. If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio. We're speaking to Grania Humphreys, who lives in West Cork, Ireland. She's a writer, a mother, and herself a psychiatric survivor and a family member of a man who's incarcerated in Ireland and diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, who she's been campaigning for the release of for many years. I had found out I was pregnant as well with my and John's child. I was in also trying to hold down a job and raise my daughter. I was in an awful state. I was trying to hide all this from my family as well. I was trying to say everything's fine, putting a brave front on. I remember sitting in the corridor at the hospital and there was a circle forming around John and they were trying to get him to comply and take this medication. And I was sitting outside of the circle on the side, and I just felt like Judas to his Jesus. <laughs> Sorry. Wow, you're really brave for telling this story. Thank you for, this is a story that needs to be heard. Yeah, it's like I feel I betrayed him. He told me how frightened he was to go back in, and I just didn't want to have to deal with this anymore. And even though I knew what he was having was a, a hugely meaningful experience. But what I didn't realize back then was quite how, uh, we call it the chemical crucifixion, and I actually recently discovered an artist, a fantastic artist who did a piece that blew me away called the chemical crucifixion, and it was a crucifix with, with her hands and uh, syringes in it. And, and actually, John was, I feel he went through some kind of a chemical crucifixion, and I didn't realize that that was going to happen to him. It's almost like I didn't believe him that it could be that bad. And then when I actually saw it, when I saw and what I've seen over the years of what's happened to him, it's just, it's unbelievable. Wow, and you didn't have any alternatives or any kind of other supports to really turn to and you didn't realize what was happening. There was no, there is no alternative support here. 
but this is the activist's journey now in that I, I, I had to connect up with people then who were as outraged by this as I was. In a very significant meeting, I met Mary Maddock of uh, Mind Freedom Ireland and Greg White, uh, uh, an integrative, uh, humanistic integrative psychotherapist, a Jungian psychotherapist as well, I think. And it was a real turning point to meet Mary. We really connected and she was at the early stages of Mind Freedom Island then. And I had written a poem to channel the anger I felt at John's treatment, which she then published in her Soul Survivor, an encounter with psychiatry book. He got transferred up to Carrigmore. Carrigmore is a, is a maximum security. It's a huge red brick building. It was featured on Behind the Walls, which was a documentary recently televised here with John's story in it because I was interviewed for that. So you can see it on that clip online. It's, it's Behind the Walls, it's called. And it, it's set up on a, on a hill overlooking Cork City. It's, it's near some housing estates and ironically there's a golf course around it. I walked around to the front of it once with John on a day out and, and I was horrified to see that the, the windows are mirrored. So you can't actually see in. It's a horrible place. It's like a prison. So the first time I went to see him in that locked visitor's room, this person came, was brought to me through the door by a psychiatric nurse and was absolutely drugged up to his eyeballs. And I couldn't believe it. He was so drugged. And I think, I think over the years, I, you know, I became desensitized to that then. What were they saying about him that they decided to put him in this maximum security uh, incarceration and drug him so much? They didn't really communicate with me. This is part of my campaigning as well, is that families are absolutely excluded. I, I remember I've, on, I've written letters about what I think John's issues are, and I've, uh, in the early years, I, someone phoned me once and wanted a sort of synopsis, and I told them a lot about John's issues and his childhood, and, and I feel I was just given lip service because all he was given was drugs, and it's just like a maintenance model. It's just drugs, drugs, and more drugs. And so they diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia, which is probably the worst diagnosis that you can get. Yeah, let's leave you on the backwards diagnosis, kind of let's just forget about you. You'll never get better. I, at first I thought, well, I'll check out what they're saying. And I looked on these, these online websites about you know, these medical ones. And I immediately, my gut just went what a load of rubbish. It didn't make any sense. This medical, medicalization of it. In a way, I think these, these experiences, are, if you look at them in the context of people's lives, they're actually a very creative response to trauma. And they, they, they make sense. They're, they're kind of common sense if you deconstruct them and, and find the pieces of the puzzle. And John is, is a very gifted writer, and he speaks in kind of poetic metaphor a lot of the time, which he'd make a very good writer of prose. But that probably is also seen as a sign of his illness, if he's too poetic. Everything. It's, they'll pathologize your cat if, if you let them. They, they pathologize everything. I mean, you can't win in this, in this game. I had never encountered such arrogance. One of my greatest challenges was to love them. I watched a lot of Pema Chodron and read her book. Pema Chodron's book, When Things Fall Apart, was a real help for me. And part of my journey was to love Carrig more, to, to open my heart to them, because otherwise I was going to self-destruct. A good thing that happened as well out of it was 
that I've met the most amazing people through the campaign. And I've learned to really embrace hopelessness and despair. Pema Chodron taught me that sometimes it's quite liberating to embrace hopelessness. And the way I see it now is that he's institutionalized and he is under their spell. He's in the twilight zone. He's, he's caught in a victim-perpetrator dynamic that is like a circle. And he's caught there. Releasing him to that has been so painful because it's the loss is almost too much to bear. I was at a workshop in Cork once and on my lunch break I went up to the hospital to visit him and I went through the locked doors and I was sitting waiting for him in the hospital, you know, the smell and the noises and it was a Sunday and I just remember hearing in the room next to me this nurse just shouting at this patient. I, I don't even like using the language of patient and nurse but this human being shouting at another human being like look at you you're an absolute disgrace and all this shouting and this person all, all I could hear from the patient was this sort of mumbling and like a you know sort of drugged up but like sort of behaving like a child I think you know if you treat someone like an animal they're going to behave like it's so unhealthy the dynamic in in that place what I notice when John has his depot shot, which is a, an injection of clopixol, which is a slow release of a medication into his system, often used for patients who are deemed non-compliant with taking their medication. What I've noticed as it wears off is that he becomes more vocal about his right, and they view that as him being unwell because he's speaking about his right. And then when he's back on the, the, the depot shot, you know, I won't hear from him for a few days because he's sleeping it off. I, I mean, I can't believe this is happening in 21st century Ireland. I can't because it's, it's such a violation of human rights. You could get burnt out fighting it. What we have to do is look at alternatives and look at ways forward and to not let anyone else have to be a victim of this type of treatment. It sounds like what you're describing is that he's really lost his personality. He's under kind of a chemical punishment. It's like a chemical punishment. I have a very good example of, a, of, a, of an insight that I, I gained one day about how the system operates. Um, I have been invited to go to a major review for John, and a major review is when the consultant psychiatrist and the the head psychiatric nurse and basically team members of of John's medical team come together with with the carers and or the the family members and to talk about John. John had been invited, but he declined to come because I think he finds that kind of setup quite intimidating because of what he's experienced in the locked unit. So they had said to me, well, the meeting had been you know going as usual and. I was being assertive and in a, in a respectful way and, and discussing John's care. He had been making a jacket out of his trousers. Basically, he's been quite creative with, with what he had in the hospital, which is very little. So they said, could you, know, could you tell him to stop doing that? So after the meeting had ended, I, I went down the stairs and down to the corridor and into the locked visitor's room. And John was brought in, and he had the most amazing trouser jacket on that he'd made. It was so creative and so coordinated and so well made 
And I just thought, wow, that's amazing. And then I remembered, oh, I was meant to tell him not to do that. And then I had this sort of insight that it's like accountants trying to understand artists. They're two different breeds of people. (laughs) I need to talk a little about the physical state of John because it's shocking. After a, a prolonged sort of media and political campaign, I was able to get John out for six hours one day. And out in the sunshine, out in the in the world, you know, he hadn't been out for two years. It hit me. The full horror hit me like a ton of bricks. He He hadn't been outdoors in two years? Two years. And I took him to a park in Cork, Fitzgerald's Park. He couldn't walk far. He was breathless. He had to sit down all the time. All his teeth are black and he's lost. He's lost a few front ones and, and his gums are all swollen. He's kind of got a grey pallor. He had been yellow before because he, he, he had uh, jaundice from liver problems. And he was wetting himself. He kept peeing himself because he's incontinent. And how old is he? 29 at this stage when I took him out that time. I I took him back to the hospital that evening and I drove home myself and I had to pull over the car to cry because it it was like the full horror hit me just how chemically damaged he was or is. It was like an awakening the following day in that I realized before I had seen and I'd known mentally what was going on with him. But it was the first time that I really felt in my body the grief at what had been done to him in the name of care. I howled and howled the the whole of the next day, and I was in an awful state, kind of processing not just what has happened to John, but what has happened to millions of people worldwide with this psychiatric drugs. And this forced treatment, it's just so wrong. It's, it's like a holocaust. I think it's like a... I, the, I often make that analogy that it's our holocaust. It's hidden. We know it's happening, but people just turn a blind eye. And some people maybe don't know it's happening, but it is. And it's like chemical warfare. It's, I know that sounds dramatic, but from what that day was like a full, full impact, it hit me just what had been done to this man, this beautiful, talented, and creative man. And Grania, tell us about the campaigning that you've done, the activist work that you've done to try and pressure the system both to release him and and treat him like a human being and also to change the system there in Ireland. Well, there's been a number of people who've who've really helped me on that path. Peter Bullimore had of Hearing Voices Network and Brian Hartnett of Hearing Voices Ireland had encouraged me to write. And it was thanks to Jane Carley then, who I connected up with on Beyond Meds. And she really laid the first block and the foundation for the campaign for the the incarceration of John by publishing the piece I'd written. And then over the years, I I came to the attention of of Elemental UK, which is an English activist group. Elemental uh, UK, Marion Aslan and Mike Smith, and they made um, a campaign video also called The Incarceration of John, which you can find on YouTube. 
eventually our story came to the attention of John McCarthy of Mad Pride Ireland and he was instrumental in breaking our story in Ireland, really first in with the Cork Independent and John's story was front page psychiatric prisoner. From there, really it's just grown and there's a, a growing movement in Ireland uh, and the Irish Critical Network is a really thriving network of people from diverse backgrounds who want to challenge psychiatric power in Ireland and also, you know, explore alternatives to the current biomedical model. And tell us what is the vision that you have and this movement has both for how John should be treated and also just changing the system in general? Well, I think that we need to be looking at the open dialogue model, which was pioneered in Western Lapland or Western Finland, sorry. I believe that if, if we had a sort of more a family therapy lens so that when, when an individual, distressed individual presents, that they're not, their experience is not medicalized, but it is viewed in the context of the entire family system. And also that the family are involved and the, the distressed individual is, is supported in uh, growing through this experience. I think we need to be looking at that model here and we need to be moving away from medicalizing distress. We need to be looking at more loving and supportive responses to distress. Yes, open dialogue is a really innovative approach and we've actually done an interview about open dialogue that people can listen to with Mary Olson. Grania, we don't have a lot of time left, but tell us, what is the status with John now? Is he still being held at Carrigmore, and how is he doing, and what's what's going on with his situation now? Well, John is, is trying to keep his spirits up. He's he's a very strong kind of individual in that he, you know, he manages to survive, continue to survive in this environment. Uh, he is institutionalized now, though he would be loath to admit that. He's trying to hold on to the idea of a life outside, and I'm trying to hold on to that idea for him too. But I've had to take a bit of a back seat in uh, in all of this because I was getting very burnt out, and I needed to be more available for my children. But he is due to be transferred to Dundrum, which is in Dublin. But but that hasn't happened yet, and we we're in the dark as regards that. He continues to be in a state of you know, he's still medicated. His issues have not been are not addressed at all. There actually isn't a psychotherapist even, in a psychologist in the centre. There is a, a basic uh, occupational therapist there, I think, and John does enjoy the art. But uh, he continues to pace up and down the corridors and live in a in a locked maximum security facility, and he really doesn't need to be there but he's managing to survive. John McCarthy has been amazing and he has taken on John's campaign really and there's a a petition that you can sign, the end force in Irish mental health petition, decriminalize human emotions. It's a movement here, we're trying to sort of end force. Grania, we're just about out of time. How can people find out more information about the situation with John and also get involved with the campaign for his release? Right. Well, there's a uh, a blog I've done called The Incarceration of John, and you can find it on freejohn-loverevolutionary.blogspot.com. There's also a Mad Pride Ireland Enforce petition that you can sign as well if you just go to the Mad Pride Ireland website. 
And how can people get in touch with you if they want to get in touch with you through the blog? I do the blog through the blog or through Facebook. Yeah, if people want to write to me on Facebook, I'm Grania Quick Humphreys. Grania Humphreys, thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thank you so much, Will. You've been listening to an interview with Grania Humphreys. She's a psychiatric survivor, a writer, and a mother, and she's an activist on behalf of her former partner, John Hunt, who's been incarcerated for many years and diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia in Ireland. That's all the time that we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is co-sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Hosted by Will Hall, music producer is John Rice, with technical assistance from Jeremy Lansman. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, including KBOO in Oregon, WXOJ and WBCR in Massachusetts, Alaska's KWMD, and WPRR in Michigan. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio to help get us broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net. Portland Hearing Voices is an education and support community for people diagnosed with bipolar, schizophrenia, psychosis, and any extreme state of consciousness. We offer regular support groups, public events, resource referrals, and holistic mental health education. Embrace mental diversity and see madness in a new way. Check out portlandhearingvoices.net.